Hey Brian, hey listeners, welcome to the 30th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the very first Godzilla movie, 1954, Japanese, it went by Gojira there, directed by Ishiro Honda, and I've actually had this one in the pipeline for a bit, for a reason I'll talk about in a little bit, but out of some good uh, coincidence... We're recording this just a few days after the latest movie in the quote-unquote Monsterverse. And I think this is kind of like the the capstone film, like the Avengers was, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's Godzilla vs. Kong or something along those lines. I don't know. I haven't seen any of the new Godzilla movies. What about you, Brian? So I have seen Shin Godzilla, which is a Toho production from a couple years ago. I have not seen any of the man who even makes them. Is it legend or yeah, I think legendary pictures. Yeah. Legendary. That's it. That uh, did Godzilla and then Kong skull Island and then a second Godzilla. Oh, Godzilla King of the monsters. And now we're here with Godzilla versus Kong. That's right. Have not seen those. I forgot to even let you say hi, Brian. It's a, it's a spring day. I just got my very first COVID vaccine. How are you doing today? Doing all right. The weeks keep coming and they don't stop coming. In a paraphrase of All Star by Smash Mouth. One of the great literary texts of our time, I would say. True. Always remember that the music video for that song is a promo for Mystery Men, not Shrek. <laughs> so, so on that note, I don't know if you've ever seen, there was a couple of years where Someone, it was probably a band member, on the official Smash Mouth Twitter account would reply to people making fun of All Star for being the Shrek song, for pointing out that exact thing, that the the song came out two years before Shrek. Everyone should know that. And it was always funny seeing the official Smash Mouth account replying. Very petty. And then a, a YouTube channel I follow called The Vlog Brothers. It's Hank Green and John Green, and I've referred to John Green several times. He's one of my favorite writers, and he hosted a podcast I really liked. They do four-minute videos that are ostensibly vlogs for the other, but are obviously meant to be enjoyed by a wide variety of people. But they went through a multi-month period where every single video was a line from that song. It was pretty funny. But... Back to the topic at hand, Godzilla, 1954, Japanese production by Toho, as you mentioned. So the reason I wanted to talk about this, and I've been meaning to talk about this, but it keeps getting deferred by by other either theme months or kind of ideas we've had, is for Christmas, you got me three books. One of them is a retrospective of Terry Gilliam's career relevant because we talked about 12 monkeys several months ago one was an imagineering themed creative exercises book and one is i'm holding this book right now the third it's called monsters are attacking tokyo by stuart galbraith the fourth and this was published in 1998 this was the first of the three books you gave me that i decided to read 
And I encourage listeners to go look this book up on Amazon just to get a sense of what the book looks like. It's got bright colors and campy pictures on the front. And it's kind of in the, the landscape orientation so that it gives the sense that this is going to be a kind of trashy, maybe not trashy. What's the word I'm thinking of? A campy? Maybe, yeah. A celebration of campiness, I would say, is what it promises. Yeah, Dan asked for weird film books for Christmas, and this was the first one that caught my eye. So I was expecting like pictures of silly rubber suits and stuff, almost like a, a coffee table book. But then I opened it up, and I really think they... I mean, maybe they sold more copies marketing it this way, but they didn't do a good job of promising what's on the inside. Because what's inside is actually a really well-researched and thoughtful consideration, not just of the Japanese kaiju monster films, but of mid-century Japanese cinema in general. And this guy, Stuart Galbraith, in the late 90s, the mid to late 90s, flew to Japan to interview a bunch of the original stars and producers and directors and effects artists and basically create an oral history of how the kaiju genre emerged in the mid-50s, basically solely on the back of this film, Godzilla. And I learned a lot. It was really interesting. And there's been kind of a renaissance both in in Japanese cinema, but also specifically kaiju films in the DVD era. So in in 2004, the Godzilla original movies were released on DVD with subtitles. This is right around the time everybody was getting widescreen TVs for the first time, etc. And I think nowadays, if you talk to random movie fans... They might know a lot more about Japanese cinema and kaiju than movie fans back in the day, because I think there's been a little bit of a a renaissance and rediscovery of it. So um, kind of the the broad story that this book paints is that in, again, mid-century Japan, there was six major studios and Toho was one of them, and they were kind of the leading edge on effects-based thrillers and they had the idea in the wake of the the lucky dragon five disaster in bikini atoll which happened in the early 50s uh, where basically a fishing boat went too too close to a uh, nuclear testing ground and they all got radiation poisoning and it kind of reignited atomic fear in japan and uh, Toho, and I'll get into a couple of the specific figures here in a minute, had the idea of basically capturing the essence of that in a, a monster film that they were originally going to do in stop motion, but they ultimately decided to do with miniatures and these kind of brand new cutting edge suits. And these, these rubber suits, this, this look, I think for the better part of the second half of the 20th century were known to Americans as the epitome of camp. So part of it is that these movies continue to get made well past the point where American Hollywood effects 
had completely leapfrogged it. So it kind of looked tacky and campy. Like by the time they were doing 2001, a space odyssey and star Wars and Spielberg was making movies. This stuff looked really old fashioned and it didn't help at all that many of the movies were imported with really bad dubs, really choppy edits. Some of them famously, the first one had very hastily and poorly made American footage to kind of try to reassemble the movie as starring an American edited into the film to make it kind of incoherent and confusing. And so these always had the reputation of just being like trash, basically like can't be silly trash. And I know in particular when I was in middle school, a couple of my friends discovered either the, the videos or the DVDs of the American versions and loved to make fun of and imitate the way that the dubbing didn't match up with the way that the mouths moved. In particular, the Japanese mouths. Japanese is a fairly quick language with like short syllables. And so their mouths would be moving really fast and it would just be a few words on top of it. And it was kind of like a goofy, funny effect. That, that they like to make fun of. And I think this was kind of representative of how people very condescendingly thought of these movies. And in Japan, these movies were cranked out in the same way that like James Bond movies are constantly made in England and Hollywood. It was kind of a franchise in and of itself. The, the Toho Kaiju movies were constantly made up through the early 90s or so when they started to really lose a lot of their cultural cachet in Japan and Toho kind of had this what seemed like a brilliant idea where basically they would stop making the movies themselves and would instead allow American studios to make Godzilla films it was going to be like a big transfer of the rights the the creative stewardship would go to Hollywood and the very first one was going to be made by Roland Emmerich the director of Independence Day, right after that movie was like the biggest movie of of 1996, I think it was. He was commissioned to make the first American-made Godzilla in 1998, which I distinctly remember that how heavy the marketing was for that and how big a deal they were making about that movie. I remember that too. There were Taco Bell commercials and just omnipresent, ubiquitous Godzilla advertising. And the the copy, the, like the advertising copy and lettering. Size matters. Yes. Oh, that that's one. Yeah. Real classy. <laughs> and I remember this just like obnoxious, violent atomic green color permeating all of the marketing. And if you look at the poster, there's this block of green that surrounds the word Godzilla. And I don't know, whenever I see a color similar to that, my brain hops over to that Roland Emmerich movie, which I actually have not seen. Um, Did you ever catch up with that one? So I've not watched that one in its entirety either. I will chime in here, though, to say that my exposure to Godzilla primarily comes from James Rolfe on Cinemassacre.com probably better known as the angry video game nerd. But I discovered, 
I guess I saw an AVGN video in like 2006 for the first time and caught a couple random ones that got like secondhand uploaded to Albino Black Sheep back in the old internet days. But at the start of my freshman year of college, I finally clicked a link to his homepage, cinemassacre.com, and I realized that he did way more, produced a whole lot more content than I ever knew about. And he had a series that he did called Monster Madness. And in October, every day of the month, he would release a horror movie review or a monster movie review. So in 2007, it's like a crash course of the big names in horror movies. Like the most iconic ones throughout the decades, 31 of those. I feel like that would be a good learning experience for me because I I only have a, a basic knowledge of, of many of those icons. I agree. I would say I decided to major in film based on this discovery pretty much. And it's born mixed fruits, but it is a really solid crash course, as you said. And it'll get you interested. Then in 2008... He followed it up again with a series called the Godzilla-thon, where every day of the month it was a Godzilla movie. And up to this point, I had no idea there were enough Godzilla movies to fill a month. Uh, at this point in 2008, there were 29, I think, including the American Roland Emmerich film. So I, I had a month-long blitz I, I enjoyed that. I think I'll link you to it in our discussion off pod and you can decide how deep you want to dive. But what I liked, one of the things that I liked, is it made use of the Godzilla theme that shows up in this movie and I guess is a is a light motif throughout the series where it goes ba 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 and by the end it was like really inspirational and powerful and it it you know it doesn't sound scary and it isn't really used at scary moments but it, it's like a sense of building anticipation yeah i completely agree that is kind of a theme of this movie is the sense of encroachment is as devastating and scary as the monster itself and i agree that 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 really iconic and just fantastic theme captures that pretty well. That's cool. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to take a look. I'll also pitch that Tim Brayton, the film critic I talk about most, and I've really enjoyed reading his reviews over the past six months or so. Um, one of the main inspirations for me starting this podcast also reviewed every single Godzilla movie. And it is, I too was blown away by how many there were when I saw that, that list. And this book, the Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo book, also it has many reviews and, and ratings of all of them in the back. So there are obsessives out there who, who love their, their Godzilla movies, but this was my first one. Yeah, the other horror host at the public access station where I produce Count Gauntlet has a show called Monster Madhouse. And he is very into kaiju films and, like, makes his own kaiju suit. Oh, wow. So 
Godzilla 1954 stars Akira Takarada. I, I just apologies in advance. I'm going to attempt to read these names, and I'm sh- absolutely sure that I am butchering them, both the actor names and the character names, but please forgive me. So this film stars Akira Takarada as Hideto Ogata. He's kind of the main protagonist, I would say. Momoko Kochi as Amiko Yamani. She's kind of the love interest. Akihiko Hirata as Dr. Daisuke Sirazawa, who I came to think of as Eyepatch Guy, because that's kind of his visual cue, is he's got a an eye patch. He lost his right eye in the war. And then an, an older scientist is Takashi Shimura as Dr. Kyohi Yamani, who's kind of the father of the love interest, but also... He's this wise paleontologist guy. And then the last and arguably biggest star is Harua Nakajima, who's the guy who's in the Godzilla rubber suit when he's doing his destruction and coming in and out of the water. The three kind of main architects of this movie that would then spin off into a franchise, and all three of these people would be the leaders of this franchise for a decade or more. So one is obviously... The director, Ishiro Honda, he was actually a respected director, kind of in the same way now that it's not too surprising in Hollywood to see like a, a well-regarded director directing a Marvel movie or, or some other big effects movie. This was a guy who was not as famous as, as kind of an auteur the same way that Ozu or Kurosawa were, but within Japan and Japan cinema, was known as one of the best and he was actually best friends with Akira Kurosawa and helped him as a co-director or an assistant director for many of Kurosawa's films and Ishiro Honda was known as like this super skilled and competent guy but also just the most nice and respectful and deferential and he never had the fire of someone who was going to like brandish his own vision upon the cinematic world so i think he ended up finding something that was good for him where he could make well-crafted films but that were maybe not necessarily his own specific voice but he could still kind of make them in a compelling way at least this one the second one is ig t-s-u-b-u-r-a-y-a suburaya and this is the guy who was the special effects super guru who they turned to after the stop motion fell through. He actually kind of became a brand in himself of these movies. In, in some movies, he actually appears in the same level of billing as the director because people, it was kind of like the equivalent of popcorn cinema. If they saw this, they knew they were getting a good effects time. They would bill his name really highly on, on the credits. He was kind of the maestro of all of the effects here from the miniatures the buildings that get destroyed the rubber suits that are godzilla the kind of more puppety zoom-ins of the godzilla and the the wasteland afterwards were kind of all his his doing the last one and perhaps the head honcho is a gentleman named tomoyuki tanaka and this was the producer so the guy who it's kind of in the, the boardroom, uh, guiding the, the direction of the franchise, the, the shape of the story. Just ima- I imagine a cigar-chomping guy telling 
the others what to do. But apparently he got a, along really well with both Honda and Tsuba Raya. And the, this book you got me, Brian, it, it talks a lot about how together they kind of collaborated and iterated on this idea until it ended up being, when it was released, one of the most popular movies in Japanese history up to that point. It was a huge smash. And yeah, I think I'm ready to, to kind of dive into it. So any, any other thoughts before we start? Well, just one thing I wanted to say is, yeah, obviously after this took off, you got in quick succession, not only Godzilla sequels, but other movies in the same vein, like Mothra and Rodan. And then you had to have crossovers where the monsters fight each other. So that's one thing we don't get here is another monster. But we'll tell you here about what we do get. I just want to shout out that there was a Godzilla versus King Kong at one point back in the day. Pretty early on, actually. Yes, 1962. And then they had a King Kong remake in, like, 1977. It's got the World Trade Center on the poster. Then we had 2003, a King Kong remake. Then we had, like, 2015 or 2016, a King Kong remake. But at the end of the Godzilla-thon, James Rolfe has a spiel about how they keep remaking just Godzilla, but when will we get the remake of Godzilla vs. King Kong? And now, 12 years later, somehow 12 whole years have gone by, but <laughs> it, it's here. Yeah, his prophecy finally came true. I like what you said about the crossovers. The more that we talk about this, the more it really makes me think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How you could expect them year in, year out characters would appear in each other's movies and that was that kind of marketing synergy was a big appeal of the brand there was like a lot of merchandise involved yeah it's it's kind of like the marvel cinematic universe uh 50 years before we got the same in in the u.s although in this case instead of being the the heroes we're rooting for in the u.s back in japan it was the monsters who were trying to destroy things although I haven't seen enough, but from what I've read, I think it turns into more, some of them are protectors against other monsters. And so it's kind of a mix of hero and monster, sort of Terminator style. Right. And it's interesting that you bring up the Marvel Universe. I actually think the first instance of something like that is the Universal Monster movies from the 30s and 40s. Mm. Yeah. Where you've got Frankenstein meets the Wolfman meets Dracula, and they're all showing up in each other's movies. And then they eventually brought in, what was it, Laurel and Hardy, like non-horror-themed franchises into the, the Universal stuff. Right. And yeah, there's like five of those with <laughs> Laurel and Hardy. So it had legs. The recent attempt at a monster verse by Universal did not work so well. Has not worked as well, at least so far. I don't know if they're still struggling to make it work. I personally will be interested to see what happens in like five years when the Universal Monsters start becoming public domain. Not that we don't already see tons of ripoffs, but I think if just anybody can finally use Dracula however they want, that we'll see the value of that IP for Universal drop off and maybe we will not have them milking it as hard. I don't know. I don't know what will happen. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. 
one last capper on kind of the arc of the Godzilla movies. So after the the 1998 uh, Roland Emmerich film bombed, I don't know if they made an American sequel. I can't remember. I don't, I don't have it in front of me right now. But Toho kind of decided to walk back its idea that this would be exclusively a American-made property. And so they did They did one reboot, rebooted franchise in, in 1999 called Godzilla 2000 Millennium Monster. And then they made a few of those. They ran out of budget to do like the special effects and they made some animated ones until they finally did a, another reboot in 2016, which is the one that you've seen. That's the Shin Godzilla. So now you kind of have parallel tracks. You have the American Monsterverse and then you also have the Toho made Godzilla movies. But anyways, on to the, the 1954, the granddaddy of them all, Godzilla, Gojira, directed by Ishiro Honda. So this movie opens with a haunting black credit screen with that really intense score that Brian was talking about. It's kind of foreboding of what's, what's to come. I'm going to be humming this tune for a while. I think it's a good one. And, and after we get the credits, we go to as I mentioned, a, a scene that kind of reflects that disaster with the fishing boat at Bikini Atoll. We, we see these fishermen just kind of relaxing on the boat, and then there's this kind of bright light burst of some sort of energy out in the water, and it, it sinks the ship near a fictional island called Odo Island. They're able to transmit a SOS to the mainland, where a second ship goes to rescue it, and that ship is also sunk. And now there's this panic. What is causing these these ships? And we get a scene that made me laugh where people were like, well, can we just keep sending out boats? Is two really enough to know that, that we, uh, we should stop sending boats? And there's this kind of this theme throughout this movie of the, the bureaucrats not being very good at managing disaster and not really knowing what to do next. And, and so I, I thought that was amusing. Right. And uh, they never learn. Obviously, there's many, many of these movies. But Godzilla is pretty unstoppable. That's a recurring theme, at least. It's like, huh, a, a tank didn't work. Let's try a plane. Let's try... An electric fence. Yeah. And... They expect results to be better, but they very rarely are. Right. We also get some scenes on the Odo Island, which is kind of this old-fashioned, sort of idyllic Japanese fishing village where they go out every day with their kind of old-fashioned boats. There's the, the temples and the, the houses that seem to have bamboo be a part of them. And again, very distinctly different from the Tokyo where the politicians are arguing. And as the, the fishing boats are failing to capture anything, they're pulling up empty nets and there's an old man who speculates the blame falls on a legendary monster called Godzilla. I mean, he says Gojira cause it's in Japanese, but it's a dramatic moment. You get it in the subtitles, Godzilla. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, there's a devastating storm at the island, which causes massive destruction. And some people from Odo Island go to Tokyo 
to basically talk about how bad the damage was and also how it was kind of unusual. It seemed like buildings were crushed as if from some downward force and there are giant footprints in the sand. And, and this is enough for the government to send out a, a research and recovery type team. This includes the uh, Yamani, the paleontologist guy, one of the main characters here. They're, they're investigating and noticing lots of weird stuff. So one is, yeah, there are indeed footprints. And inside the footprints are ancient life. I forget what they're called, trilobites or something like that. Yeah, the guy scoops a trilobite out of the footprint. What struck me is I was surprised that Godzilla could stay mysterious for so long <laughs> when he's as big as he is. It seems like once somebody sees him, everybody's going to see him because he's just going to be that big. But I guess you could argue that he either kills everyone as, as one feature or almost everybody, so there's not a lot of witnesses. And two is that obviously Japan is a bunch of islands. So he can disappear into the sea at will. It stretches it about to its breaking point, I would say, in terms of the plausibility that not everyone knew had seen Godzilla yet. Because one thing is he he seems to live underwater. And like the first real human contact we get, other than the boat sinking, is this damage on the island, which coincides with this massive storm. And so... I think someone attests to seeing the monster, but like in general, it's so stormy. People are staying inside their huts there. So, and it's not until this team comes out when uh, Godzilla appears again, because sure enough, as they're doing this research, someone's like, Oh, Godzilla, he's over there. And they, they go to the other side of the Island and you see crested over the mountains, this giant, kind of Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur spiky black freaky looking thing peering over the ridge and you see him for I don't know maybe 30 seconds but then he disappears again but now everyone's seen Godzilla and somebody gets a picture of him and they bring it back to the politicians and you get more of the politicians it's not like Dr. Strange love satire incompetence. Like you can tell they're actually politicians trying to do politics. But like one of the first arguments is we shouldn't tell people about this because then it'll get news to other governments, which will make us look weak. And I don't know, kind of, it actually struck me, certainly not a 100% parallel, but the way that this COVID has shaken out and just the kind of ineptitude, bumbling, priorities not in order politics that has gone with a lot of that stuff and how it feuds and bickering when there's like a real danger out there. I, I would say there even it's it's certainly not a one-to-one -one parallel, but there's a lot of resonance here to 2020 and 2021. I don't know if you saw any of that, Brian. Yeah, I was a little surprised because the one movie I've seen in the Godzilla series was this recent Shin Godzilla. And that one focuses a lot on the human bureaucracy. And how do you deal with a Godzilla attack if you're like some government stooge? So that is almost like a return to form, I guess, because the original does a lot of that. 
I also think it's got a lot of Japanese cultural commentary. I think it's interesting that this came at a time when Japan was technically not allowed to have a military. It's like in the in the wake of World War II, one of the stipulations when we went and occupied the country was you can't have a military. I think they had something called the Defense Force or something, and they, I think they call the Coast Guard in this movie. It's like, we're, we're going to get the Coast Guard. Interesting. I didn't think about it from that angle. I, I definitely want to talk a lot more about how this reflects a lot of things that were going on in Japan post-war. I mean, some of it is extremely surface obvious. Like, they talk about the bombs a lot, and... There is no question that the unstoppable force of Godzilla is a parable about atomic weapons. I think there's some other things going on too here that I want to talk about in a bit. But I, I agree, there's there's a lot of cultural commentary in here. And that way it reminded me a little bit of Night of the Living Dead. Obviously like a, an early zombie movie in the same way that this is an early kaiju movie. And was as much about like political commentary as it was about the actual scary things that we're looking at. Godzilla continues to occasionally strike. He sinks ships and he, he appears. Oh, there's this nice little cruise ship. They're enjoying their drinks and boom, out pops Godzilla and sinks the ship. And the Japanese government is doing whatever they can to try and respond. Like you were talking about this. They try one thing after another what if we drop bombs in the water? Will that blow it up? And, and nothing's working. And the politicians are starting to get scared that it will disrupt the economy and, and things like that and are brainstorming how they can, what is the thing they can do to kill it? But this, this older paleontologist, uh, Yamane, he's, he insists that this thing can't be killed. Um, it needs to be studied, in fact, because it is clearly resistant to nuclear weapons so it must have some sort of intense ability to defend against radiation and strong energy and it needs to be studied but like th this debate over whether you should or should not kill godzilla goes on for a while and it's like optimistic to think you even can <laughs> yeah like the the whole point is that the most powerful existing weapon does nothing to it. We know that going in, yet we still get many scenes of weapons lesser than nuclear bombs being attempted against it. That's true. Although I, I don't know, I found something kind of authentic about the way that everybody was just terrified of it and nobody knew exactly what it could do. I mean, I guess they all kind of accepted that it was the H-bomb that woke it up. Like, this this encroaching fear, we gotta kill it, we gotta kill it while we can, we gotta do something to, to deal with it. Like, that kind of reaction. But you're right that <laughs> it, it becomes more and more clear as this goes on that nothing you can do conventionally can do any damage to this thing. But I do think there's some cultural commentary also in every time they send out some new wave of defense to fight Godzilla we get this little almost like parade moment of martial splendor and there's this light motif of music that plays and I feel like there's 
some symbolism there of the Japanese doomed soldiers going out and they're going to face this ultimately unstoppable force. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I like that angle and how it like it'll ultimately consume them and overpower them regardless of of what they try to do. Yeah. But this is the point in the movie where we start to get to know a little bit more some of these characters. So the main protagonist is one of the people who's kind of on the rescue mission. And he's this guy named Ogata. Ogata. And he is in love with Amiko, who is the daughter of that paleontologist. But Amiko is engaged to Sarazawa, who is the eyepatch guy. And Sarazawa is also a colleague of the paleontologist. So we have this kind of tightly knit group of people working together in various capacities. And um, we learn a few things. One is that because Amiko is in love with Ogata, but still engaged with Sarazawa, she's kind of conflicted about that. And Sarazawa is in the midst of this mad scientist experiment for a super weapon. And he reveals the secret to Amiko, his fiance, that this weapon is called the, well, we don't know what, we don't learn about exactly what it is, but we learn that it, it horrifies Amiko at this moment. And uh, she continually tries to kind of break off the engagement. And to me, this was another bit of kind of cultural commentary thing about that's going on with Japan here is like, there's a lot of things where it's not just the actual threat of the monster itself, but there's strong elements of like modern Western capitalist urban society driving itself into Japan and the conflicting things about that. So for example, her engagement with Sarazawa is arranged, but obviously her, She's in love with someone else. And so she's in some way conflicted between doing the traditional thing to marry the, the, the person she's been betrothed to or to follow her heart and be with the one that she loves. Life lesson. The ladies generally don't like it when you unveil your super weapon. <laughs> it's a turn off, yeah. apparently. I guess, yeah. Theme later... Uh, explored in Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. I know a favorite of yours. There's kind of some, some bickering here between the various parties. Ogatis is of the mindset that we got to kill Godzilla if we can figure out some way to do it. And Yamane, the, the older paleontologist, insists they don't. And that rift boils over into the romantic rift. But it all kind of becomes moot Shortly thereafter, when we get the climactic Godzilla attack, he rises again out of Tokyo Bay. He, he breaks through this electric fence that the government built to kind of defend against him, which is, of course, it's just another thing that they throw at him that doesn't even phase him. And he destroys buildings. He has this atomic fire breath we see for the first time that just melts things and makes everything catch on fire. And it, this spree of terror and destruction lasts for something like 15 to 20 minutes. It's definitely the, the set piece of the movie. 
there's there's some really striking moments of of effects here. I really like it when you see Godzilla kind of lumbering in the background, and then in the foreground you see people panicking and and fleeing as this kind of huge, devastating, giant thing lumbers towards them. It, it really gives you a sense of scope and mass and size of this this creature. And someone does actually yell, "It's Godzilla!" So that. <laughs> The, the moment that I think pop culture has led us to expect from a Godzilla movie did did occur in the original. Uh, but I, too, was impressed by some of these shots. They, like, legitimately are well-constructed. I've heard fans say that one of the challenges of one of these kaiju movies is to effectively make them seem large. Because obviously it's a, it's a real-sized person stumbling around a tiny town. But if you shoot it from a low angle, that's generally going to help. And it, it has to, like, move at the right speed. And for the most part, they do a pretty good job in this sequence. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you hit on some good things there. We should talk a little bit about how these effects work here. So you mentioned one is obviously the iconic rubber suit. This is actually a guy, and I mentioned this guy's name. It's Harua Nakajima. Um, one anecdote I learned from the book is he spent a lot of time going to the zoo and watching animals move and trying to learn exactly how an animal moves, it, it, like when it's going slow, when it's taking big steps, when it's pouncing, when it's doing different things, and tried to mimic his own movement of what he had observed in the in the zoo, in the animals. And I think it pays off because... For the most part, it doesn't feel like a dude walking. It does feel like something non-human. Maybe a monster or some sort of creature or something. Some of the other effects, as you mentioned, the miniatures. And the miniatures were... I mean, I, I understand they probably get better in the later ones. But a lot of the times, I thought they were really good. And it would cut from people outside of what was a set, presumably, to a, a cityscape. And there were a few times where I was not sure if it was like a shot of Tokyo that someone took from a helicopter or a miniature set. Obviously, once Godzilla started stomping through, that made it kind of clear. But you definitely have, have those, those small recreations of the city as part of it. And then the last one that I think has probably aged the worst out of these is when you zoom in on Godzilla, they used puppets and like things on sticks and those ones I think you can tell are puppets and things on sticks. I thought those ones looked kind of tacky. Right. And it doesn't even look similar to the full body one. It's like very clearly a different head and yeah, it's flopping around like a hand puppet. Right. So after this, this monstrous attack, we cut to a scene of Amiko this is kind of the love interest here at, I guess she's a nurse or something. She's caring for the people who survived and they're showing signs of radiation poisoning from Godzilla and his atomic fire breath. And Amiko is understandably very distressed by this carnage and reveals to Ogata, Ogata, despite promising that she would not do this, that her fiance is building a super weapon. And we get a, a flashback to that scene once again where he revealed it to her, but we get more detail in that scene. 
So it, we see that when he drops this little, I guess it's like a pellet or something into the water, it makes the water go all bubbly. And then the fish, their flesh instantly is off of their bodies and they're left as just skeletons. He calls it the oxygen destroyer. Apparently it it's burns all the oxygen in the water. And when Amiko reveals this to Ogata, he has the idea that, hey, let's go convince Sarazawa to use this against Godzilla. This could be the thing that could destroy Godzilla. And they approach him. They approach Sarazawa. I thought this was a really compelling moment. It like it grounds this character and gives him kind of his own distinct angle here. He refuses to use it because he fears that it will be weaponized, that it will become yet another thing that people use to attack each other, to destroy each other. And he doesn't want his, his science to be a part of that. And he doesn't want to share it with the world until it can be used for good instead of for evil. This was a moment I scoffed at because... <laughs> What is it if not a super weapon? It's a thing that vaporizes all living things in a body of water. Right. I, that, I agree. That thought crossed my mind too. Is like, okay, what is, if not this, what is the good thing going to be? And he's like, no, use it for peaceful applications. <laughs> it can't ever become a weapon. It's literally an oxygen destroyer. How could it be anything other than a weapon? I kind of like the idea that it could be a disinfectant, though. Mm -hmm. You like you put it in in drinking water, and it kills all the diseases in it. Now you bring that to Africa and places where they have bad water supplies. Drop in one of these pellets, do whatever electrical procedure or whatever to activate it. Boom! You've killed all of the the waterborne diseases there. That's a good thought. So they're kind of having this argument, and either the TV was already on, or someone turns on the TV. And there's footage of the aftermath of the destruction. And we get this really touching kind of combination of things. First, this long pan shot on the destruction. And this is where the A-bomb stuff really hit home for me. It's like, damn, this is like legitimately terrifying post-apocalyptic state. And this is still fresh in the minds of Japanese people who are watching this movie. This must have been a really resonant moment. And then it, it pairs that with this footage of this huge girls choir singing this really mournful song. And all of this is sufficient to move Sarazawa to agree to use the oxygen destroyer to take down Godzilla. But before he does that, in his this cannot be used as a weapon, Fervor decides to burn all of his research with the thought that if they use the one bit of oxygen destroyer he created and he destroys his research, then they won't be able to reproduce it once the world kind of knows about this technology. He throws his papers into the fire, which for some reason makes his fiance cry, I guess just because it was a dramatic moment that he was giving up his life's work. And so at last, they, they all go out on this Coast Guard boat and Sarazawa and Ogat. I don't know why it had to be these two guys, but it was Sarazawa and Ogata dive underwater with the oxygen destroyer. And here we get another moment that I also found very striking and compelling, which is 
we see Godzilla just kind of chilling on the ground and it's so quiet and peaceful and you have all these fishies swimming around and it's like a stark contrast to the noise and destruction of Godzilla earlier. And it kind of drives home this idea that maybe we shouldn't destroy and weaponize the things <laughs> that are kind of fundamental to nature and we should let things kind of live in sanctuary. I don't know. They go down there, they find this Godzilla and this, this life and Surizawa sets off the weapon. And the way we can tell it sets off the weapon, it's kind of like if you've ever put dry ice in water, like all these bubbles come out, the water on top gets kind of frothy. They've done it, it's destroying the life around them and it's time for them to get out. But Surizawa cuts his oxygen tube basically ensure the secret of the oxygen destroyer dies with him and we see Godzilla die like the fish in the the previous scene he basically instantly goes from fully formed to just bones this is another effect that didn't do it for me when they use the oxygen destroyer and it again it just looks like you put dry ice in water and instantly they go from being just normal living things to just bones. I thought that was kind of tacky. I like this old school skeletonization. It's like teenagers teenagers from outer space or something. But I was really surprised that this worked. Like instantly, yeah. Yeah, just now Godzilla is a skeleton. <laughs> they did it. Nothing else up to this point worked at all, but now this is completely effective. Right. <laughs> you could drop an H-bomb on him, not a scratch, but the first dose of Oxygen Destroyer, and he's just completely obliterated. But I think the message is that there's always going to be a bigger weapon. And we even get some wise foreboding aside from the scientist at the end where he says, you know, as time goes by, weapons will just continue to awaken Godzilla's. Yeah. Godzilla will return in From Russia With Love. <laughs> it's a melancholic conclusion to the film as they kind of, they mourn Sarazawa and his sacrifice. And yeah, they get that, that last stern warning that if we don't stop nuclear testing, don't stop trying to build the next big bomb. You're exactly right. Who knows? It could be a Mecha Godzilla next time. And that wraps Godzilla in 1954. So just a, a couple of anecdotes that from this book that I haven't got a chance to mention yet. One, and this might have been my favorite anecdote. So the Godzilla is an Americanization of Gojira, which is the Japanese name of the film. And the word Gojira is uh, a portmanteau of gorilla, so the, the English word, and Kujira which is the Japanese word for whale. So you kind of push those together, you get Gojira. But the funny thing about it is they didn't invent this name, this word for this movie. It was actually a nickname for this really tall buff guy who worked in PR at Toho. He was part gorilla, part whale, this, this monstrously huge guy. And they're like, hey, that's a great name for a monster who's also huge and imposing. So... I wonder, I'm sure that guy's probably not alive anymore, given that this is almost 70 years ago at this point. But I wonder how he felt about being the the guy who whose nickname inspired the name for Godzilla. Um, one other anecdote is that Honda's favorite moment in this film 
his favorite bit of symbolism is during that that frenzy of destruction Godzilla burns down a clock with his acid breath his acid fire and he assembled this as a symbol of time running out if humans continue to use nuclear weapons more and more powerful weapons so it certainly was very intentional all the stuff you were talking about another crazy thing about the filming of this is that the rubber suit that Harua Nakajima wore was so hot and ventilated so poorly they could only film three minutes at a time or he would pass out so all of the takes you saw he would have the suit on for just a couple minutes before having to get out of it and uh, air himself out a little bit before kind of repeating I, I can only imagine how exhausting that that must have been yeah the people who do it on monster madhouse seem not to stick around for very long <laughs> all right any thoughts before we jump to some good things and some not so good things let's take the leap i have a couple of good things about this movie one is much in the same way i really liked how night of the living dead was a very well-constructed horror movie that also happened to just be extremely evocative and social commentary. I thought this movie did this as well, fantastically well. All the things we're talking about, the fear of atomic warfare, Holocaust, it's not even subtext, it's text. They're talking about it all the time. Uh, and then also what I was saying about how just the westernization as sort of this encroaching force, like all of these social themes are, are really well captured, I thought. Another thing I liked just about the atmosphere, and I think this is a credit really to the both the script and the direction, is that there's really this encroaching, growing fear of power. It's just this sense of building dread at Apocalypse in a way that I really felt. It actually made me think of a comment you had recently, Brian, about how what's the compelling way to depict human drama in the midst of Armageddon level threats. Like I think you talked about Bird Box. I can't remember what movie or what other the context was, but I thought this movie did that about as well as you could because obviously Godzilla is this absolute unstoppable force unless you take away his oxygen apparently. But like the the way that everyone reacted to the growing apocalyptic fears I thought was was pretty compelling. I agree. My knowledge is not comprehensive by any means, but I think there's debate among fans of the Godzilla series as to how important human characters ought to be in a given film. It's like, how, how much weight do you give to the humans when what you want to see is the monster? And it's like, are humans anything other than things to get stepped on and and fire blasted but i thought they did a good job in this movie of giving some weight to the human scenes and you know making it about the humans and not having that be bad i completely agree i haven't seen too many of these kaiju films i don't really have strong opinions about them in general but in my mind this had the right amount of human drama the right amount of social commentary to basically not let it distract from the 
ever towering monster that's always in just in the mist just beyond the horizon until it comes stomping down your doorstep but if you don't have any of that if you, if you don't have those characters then it perhaps cheapens and makes less impactful the actual carnage that the monster is imparting because why do we care where are the human stakes in this you know so i agree with you i thought it did a good job of that another another positive of this film as already mentioned is that i think most of the effects really hold up like it's just a it's a good looking movie in general it's definitely dated but not in like a horrendous sort of way as mentioned the weak stuff for me was the the puppet stuff and I thought the fire breath looked kind of cheesy, like it was just kind of drawn on the film or something. And then, of course, the oxygen destroyer just bubbles. But the the rubber suit and the way that that was like kind of framed against the humans and the miniatures was really compelling and and striking. I thought just in general, it's a it's a visually compelling movie, accented by this really moody and dark cinematography, and and you can really feel the directorial skill of Honda in, in just making a movie that it's not just kind of campy, trashy fun. Like it's real cinema that holds together and kind of has a visual identity and evokes atmosphere. I don't know. I, I thought this movie looked good. What do you think, Brian? Overall? Yes. Better than I was expecting. There's a shot where Godzilla's fire breath melts these telephone poles possibly part of the big electric fence that the government erects. But the towers actually melt from the heat. And I want to know what they actually made the towers out of and how they did this. It would be cool to be a fly on the wall, the the filming and the creation of uh, these special effects. And apparently uh, Subaraya, the, the special effects maestro, was like a very eclectic tinkering type guy and he was known to basically someone would come in and say hey i want a blank like i want a ferris wheel that crumbles and he would like uh and he would go find a box and pull out and he would have a ferris wheel ready for crumbling like he was always just kind of creating different things and again i would like to be a fly on the wall of uh of his the way he worked and and the stuff he assembled and the way he was all filmed I like that a lot. That wraps up my good things I wanted to discuss. Did you have any else that you wanted to add here? I think they effectively set it up for sequels, even though they vaporize Godzilla. I think they leave enough of a thread there that we're going to see him again. Which we would, how many times did you say it was? 29 times or something? As of 12 years ago. (laughs) So probably more now, like pushing 40. Right. I think if you count the legendary ones, it's like getting close to 40. So some not so good things about Godzilla 1954. One that just bothered me kind of disproportionately is that the science in this movie is super duper wonky. For a movie that's relatively tonally austere and not off the wall silly, the fact that the science was as bad as it was (laughs) really stuck out to me. So one is they multiple times talk about how dinosaurs and trilobites lived together two million years ago. I, 
I'm pretty sure as of 1954, they knew that that was not the right number. It's more like 65 million years ago. And they talk about the Jurassic period, but that really wasn't the last period. Not to belabor it too much. I had a big poster in my youth that said Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. So that's the order. Uh, there, There is more than just that. Uh, there's the like the Cambrian and the Precambrian, but Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. Yeah, and I know some of those things have like uh, sub periods or whatever. Right, and you have yeah. epochs and ages and eras. Right, but they did not put a lot of effort into getting that right in this film. Another kind of really fundamental bit of wonky science. I could not wrap my head around this idea that hydrogen bomb testing awakened Godzilla and they kind of hand wave away an explanation for that. It's like it caused an earthquake and the earthquake is where the dinosaur was and the dinosaur came out from that, but it did not register for me. Like if you're dropping bombs on things that doesn't make old dinosaurs come alive. Well, I took it that the aquatic testing opened up a cave or made wherever Godzilla was living before unsustainable that not so much that it like brought him to life but that he was already down there and it bothered him and he had to move from where he was yeah I suppose also worth repeating the oxygen destroyer just utter nonsense I don't I mean I guess the idea is that it was new brand new technology but it's just bubbles you're not burning oxygen in water that's not a thing that happens i don't know but maybe i'm getting too nitpicky here and they describe it a couple different ways so even the explanation of how it's supposed to work is unclear (laughs) like does it take the oxygen that's mixed into the water or does it take the actual oxygen atoms from the water molecules and i think one of them at least in the subtitle says that it like separates the oxygen atom into liquids and it's like well wait a minute (laughs) what what does that mean because i missed that one yeah like a liquid is made of atoms i don't think you can get a liquid from an atom I i don't know but then i'm not a an expert on atoms so maybe you're, you're no atomologist i'm no scientist. so that was really my only not so good thing on this movie other than the effects that have not aged too well did you have any other things you wanted to complain about here today not too much i guess this is a criticism somewhat of the film but more so of my short attention span was I was not paying 100% attention to this movie. I think there's a way you could cut this movie down to like 75% of the runtime and still get all the beats. I think that's probably true. It's not not overbearingly long. It's only, my cut was 96 minutes. Yeah, it was like an hour and 40. Yeah, there's certainly some fluff, I suppose, or like unnecessary politicians arguing or... Will he resist the electric fence? Will he resist the bombs that got maybe just a hair repetitive? And there was a lot of time, particularly in the first half, where 
you spend it not with our main characters, but with like randos on a train or these politicians arguing or whatever news reporters. Oh, that was a good scene actually. When the news uh, tower fell, that was like really scary. Oh, I really liked how that was edited. Yeah. It was like, you got the people on the tower and the monster is coming, but then Godzilla swipes the tower and you get a shot of people falling off the tower and it looks pretty good and scary and it's just like a split second of them tumbling off and then it cuts to a shot of like a pov of a camera dropping down out of the sky down to the land right because they were recording live oh wow i didn't even i didn't even pick that up that's wild in the in the universe they were recording live oh right right the reporter reporter characters yeah very compellingly edited i'm glad you pointed that out it actually made me think of 9-11, which I guess a lot of stuff here probably did, but just that specific moment in particular did. And on that uplifting note, I am ready to move to the signature section of our podcast. Is it good? What about you, Brian? Any, any additional thoughts? I think I'm ready. So, Brian, I'm the host today, and as you and our listeners know, Is It Good is an eight-point rating system that we give for every one of our films ranging from very not good our one out of eight to our masterpiece rating eight out of eight toward day good so brian is godzilla 1954 good so i feel like this is a rating that i've been throwing out lightly and frequently as of late but i'm going to give the original godzilla a six out of eight very good i think it is pioneering in a lot of ways there are many, many movies that would not exist, at least not in the same form, were it not for this film. And it lays all the groundwork, establishes all the tropes you would come to expect of the giant monster film. Even among other Godzilla movies, at least from my understanding, this seems like a pretty good one. Balances the human drama with the monster action, and was a good leaping off point for the dozens of films to come how did this movie rate with you dan i agree with you um but i'm gonna go even higher i'm giving this a seven out of eight exceptionally good i was kind of blown away by how good this was like a lot of it was borderline masterpiece level for me just very great control of tone the sense of dread of this kind of coming force the payoff the actual destruction is is very impressive visually and intense and the aftermath of it too, both the scene, kind of the, the visual carnage, but also the reckoning with the emotional aspect of that. Uh, with You got the shot with the, the choir singing that kind of got the hair sticking up on my arms and the post-apocalyptic stuff. And, but the very clear kind of uh, societal element that really echoes with everything that's going on in the plot and how it's very distinctly Japanese and feels really lived and earnest and effective. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I do think there are some things that don't hold up with it and you're probably right. You could trim a few minutes off of it, but I'm giving it a seven out of eight and exceptionally good a rating that I feel like I've been throwing around a lot recently, but there you go. It really is interesting to think about how 
the end of World War II was just nine years before this movie. And the invention of the H-bomb was like two years before this movie. Honestly, crazy how quick they came up with the H-bomb after the A-bomb, and it's so much more powerful. Yeah. It's, it's like immediately they need the something a hundred times crazier. But I think that sense of we are building towards an apocalypse with this weapons stuff, particularly by the one nation that actually has been a victim of a nuclear blast. I found it evocative and compelling. So, yeah. I think probably the later films, I haven't seen them, but I think by reputation and by what I read on Tim's reviews of them is they are less moody and somber. They're a little more campy, a little more action-y. Not too campy, I don't think, but um, I think as it kind of got into its formula... I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it loses kind of its pulse of the human element. But I don't know if I'm inspired enough to go and watch it because I do feel this is kind of singular and I don't know how you recapture that magic. But I'm also, I enjoyed it enough. I feel like I got to at least watch one more. Maybe I'll see what the next one in the series is. I think the second one has Anguirus in it, who's like a porcupine monster. Interesting. But yeah, that wraps up my thoughts on on Godzilla. Thank you for giving me the Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo book. I got a lot out of it. And thank you for watching Godzilla with me. This is like a slice of cinema history that I'm glad to have dipped my toe into. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I got you a different weird movie book than other people. <laughs> my brother's got me some too. So, yeah. So, Brian, what do you have for us for next week? What will we be watching and discussing in episode 31 of the goods a film podcast so we typically record our episodes on wednesdays i know they don't drop on wednesdays so it's probably not the best way of theming things it means that we say record an april fool's episode that doesn't air until almost a week after april fool's but it's just how i like to do things I like to theme to the recording date, not the not the intended airing date. And you're just going to have to roll with that for now. Because I believe our next taping is going to be on April 14th. And late at night on April 14th and early into the morning of April 15th is when the sinking of the Titanic occurred. Now, the Titanic obviously has left a big footprint on history on pop culture and probably the most well-known film adaptation is james cameron's 1997 entry just titled titanic and i know that you've written about that one that one was like number 57 or something in your top 100 film favorites back when you wrote about all of them a few years ago on our, our blog earnthis.net right i think it was exactly 57 so good memory glad to know that somebody <laughs> read it oh i did but I have something of a self-imposed rule that I won't assign one of the movies that was included in that series, at least not on its own. So, I had several other options to consider. I was strongly tempted to assign the 1943 film, also titled Titanic, which was produced in like the floundering days of Nazi Germany, which I watched this like two hour special on the history channel that was called Nazi Titanic. 
and it was all about the production of this film and it's it's very interesting but that is not the assignment i am going to assign from 1958 a film called a night to remember i think it was a british production and if you compare it to the 1997 titanic there's a lot of interesting like shot for shot almost recreations interesting so I have not seen A Night to Remember before. Just some some super cuts of comparisons. So I wanted to break free from my tendency to assign movies I have seen before and give us something that is only similar to things I have seen before. And so that's that's the movie. To mark the occasion, The Night of the Sinking, A Night to Remember. I was kind of hoping you were going to assign the James Cameron one because I... I've been looking for an excuse to watch that recently, but maybe I'll, I'll just watch it uh, this week in conjunction with watching the... What, what's the title again? A Night to Remember. And actually, I'm glad that you said that, because this is a kind of a case where you get a a bonus potential of, of maybe we will also talk about the 97 Titanic. There is a, a chance. It might be in the cards. Sounds good, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I have one or two Titanic-related anecdotes. Or Titanic-dotes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could say that. But I, I'm looking forward to watching a movie about a very large entity whose presence in water results in the death of many unsuspecting victims, causing widespread fear among those people and leaving a lasting mark on cinematic history. That's right. Marine disaster in the Pacific segues to marine disaster in the Atlantic. <laughs> but yeah, I enjoyed watching Godzilla with you. This was a window in my film horizon that had not been completely open before. I, I had only glimpsed Godzilla through a dusty pane. And now I see him clearly. There you go. Well, as always, thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. I love doing this every week. Thank you, listeners, for, for uh, joining in. You can find us at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com or give us an email at thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we'd love to hear from some of you, and we'd love to see some subscribers and some reviews. So look for us there, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye, Brian. Don't hold back. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> Absolutely. Rate, rate, review, and subscribe. Smash that like button.